Chapter 6, Part 2 of U.S. Marine Operations in Korea, 1950-1953, Volume 2, The Inchon Seoul Operation, by Lynn Montross and Nicholas Canzona. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Hitting the Beaches Fighting on Observatory Hill Darkness had fallen when Company B drove up the slopes of Objective A in a two-pronged attack. Six Marines were wounded in brief skirmishes with North Korean diehards along the way. Gaining the summit at 2000, Fenton deployed three platoons online, making contact with the Magnus Merit Force dug in on the saddle to the right. With Objective A seized and Able Company deployed on top and to the flanks of Cemetery Hill, Newton radioed the 5th Marines at 2240 that one five segment of the OA line was secured. In the right of the 5th Marine zone, the 2nd Battalion had also been making gains. Despite the handicaps of mixed boat waves, LST fire, poor visibility, and finally, enemy action. It will be recalled that Company E suffered no casualties in landing and clearing the waterfront as far south as Objective C, the British Consulate. Next to hit the beach was 1st Lieutenant H.J. Smith's Company D, part of which went ashore in 1-5 zone. Assembling later near the base of Observatory Hill, the unit prepared to carry out its mission of seizing Objective B, the southern half of the Big Ridge. Although 2nd Battalion overlays show that Easy Company bore no responsibility for the crest of Observatory Hill, Smith's men somehow got the impression that part of Jaskilka's force was already on the summit. Its tactics based on this misunderstanding, Company D formed a simple route column, with 2nd Lieutenant Ray Heck's 1st Platoon leading the way, and marched up a street to the top of the hill. The vanguard troops cleared the first peak in the company zone without opposition and continued along the road to the 2nd, expecting to meet men of Company E. They were greeted, however, by machine gun fire from an enemy squad entrenched to the right of the street. The Marines tumbled into positions on the left. Grenades and small arms fire flew back and forth across the road during a brisk exchange that lasted about 15 minutes. One of Heck's men was killed and three others wounded. The company corpsman was hit but refused evacuation until he had first administered to the other casualties and seen them off to safety. Company D's executive officer, 1st Lieutenant Michael J. Dunbar, went forward with Lieutenant Colonel Royce, the battalion commander, and was wounded by a ricochet. The enemy troops were driven off just as darkness closed in, leaving the Marines to grope for night defensive positions on unfamiliar ground. Eventually, Lieutenant Smith formed a line with all three rifle platoons deployed on the forward slopes of Objective B. Out of battalion reserve came 2nd Lieutenant Harry J. Nolan's platoon of Company F to bridge the gap between Company D and the Magnus Merritt positions in 1-5 zone on the left. With cemetery and observatory hills secured, the only portion of the OA line not yet under control was the extreme right, anchored on the intertidal basin. Since the night was pitch black, Royce felt apprehensive about sending troops any farther into the city. In answer to a query, Lieutenant Colonel Murray, whose regimental headquarters had landed at 1830 and set up near the terminus of the Walmido Causeway, emphasized to Royce that where the OA line could not actually be defended from a suitable tactical standpoint, it must at least be outposted. 
The battalion commander forthwith dispatched a two-squad patrol from Fox Company to the Tidal Basin, and the small force returned from the 1,000-yard prowl into the city at 2300, having seen no sign of the enemy. Royce reacted by committing Company F, less its platoon on Observatory Hill, to a defensive perimeter on the right flank. Shortly after midnight, Captain Yule D. Peters deployed the company next to the Tidal Basin as ordered, and the 5th Marines OA line, though not manned in entirety, came as close to tactical reality as the tangled black depths of the seaport would allow. 1st Marines on Blue Beach As mentioned earlier, the overcast resulting from rain squalls and smoke had completely blotted out Blue Beach by H-hour, 1730. This fact in itself would have sufficed to upset a precise landing procedure, but at this point in the narrative, it is timely to review some of the other problems which had beset the 1st Marines since the inception of the plan for the Inchon assault. In the short space of weeks, the regiment had been brought up to war strength by the rapid convergence on Camp Pendleton of Marines, in units or as individuals, both regular and reserve, from all over the United States, it had embarked at San Diego and crossed the Pacific, and it had reloaded and embarked from Japan for a combat operation designed to quench a major conflagration. There had been time for only the sketchiest training above the company level. The new 1st Marines had never operated tactically as a regiment, nor had it ever been concentrated in one place as an organizational entity up until the time it hit Blue Beach. During the planning phase in Kobe, battalions had to combat load their LSTs according to an X-factor while awaiting the prescribed tactical plans that would be handed down from higher echelons at the last minute. Intelligence on the enemy and beach conditions was practically non-existent, and the speculative studies and inadequate photos available could be kept only a few hours before being passed on to the next unit in line. Whenever Marines were given a difficult assignment, the United States Navy invariably draws its own full measure of handicaps. A typical example of the problems confronting naval planners was this case, cited by Major Edwin H. Simmons of 3-1. I was aboard LST-802, which was carrying H&S Company and elements of Weapons Company. The ship had just been recovered from the island trade. Her captain had been flown out to Sasebo from the States, given a pickup crew and two weeks to condition the ship and crew for an amphibious landing. Despite his best efforts, the 802 had three major breakdowns and had to drop out of convoy several times. At one point it appeared as though the battalion command group would have to be taken off the 802 if they were to get to Incheon in time. In connection with Blue Beach itself, officers of the 1st Marines had only a vague impression of offshore conditions and the accessibility of the landing site. As already noted, the current in the channel was underestimated and so little was known about the consistency of the mudflats that each landing craft contained planking for emergency use by the assault troops. The sole exit from Blue 1 was the dirt road already mentioned. On aerial photos, the drainage ditch separating Blue 1 and 2 appeared to be some kind of a road over which tractors could crawl ashore. No one was certain, and Blue Beach 3, the cove on the right, was ruled out as a possible landing area early in the planning. 
At the last minute, however, recent aerial photos and studies led to the conclusion that both the inlet and the ramp at the southern tip of Blue 2 might be good approaches after all. Acting on this information while en route to the target area, Lieutenant Colonel Thomas L. Ridge, commanding officer of 3-1, decided to explore personally the right flank with his executive officer at the outset of the assault. If the ramp, Blue 3, or both were accessible to LVTs, Ridge would divert later assault echelons on a follow-me basis. Thus, vital questions were to remain unanswered until the officers and men of the 1st Marines got their first look at Blue Beach. It was keenly disappointing, therefore, when they stared from the line of departure on the afternoon of 15 September and saw, instead of the distant shoreline, a murky wall rolling seaward from the blazing waterfront. As noted previously, the line of departure was 5,500 yards, 3.2 miles, from the beach, a distance requiring 45-minute trips for the slow-moving LVT waves. The ship-to-shore movement got off to a bad start owing to the current, which scattered some of the landing formations during the rendezvous phase. Other obstacles entered the picture in rapid succession, one of them best described by Lieutenant Clark, Blue Beach Control Officer. At about H-50, while press boats and the initial waves of LVTA and LVT were milling around the Blue Beach control vessel, Wantuck, mortar fire was received in the immediate vicinity. This created some confusion until a destroyer spun around on her anchor and silenced the battery. This was the beginning of the end of the well-planned ship-to-shore movement for Blue Beach. Other shortcomings that took on special significance because of the overcast were the lack of compasses and radios in the amphibian tractors and the inexperience of many of the crews. The first wave, consisting of the Army LVTAs, was escorted shoreward from the line of departure by Navy guideboats, manned by UDT crews who possessed both the compass and seamanship necessary to pierce the smoke screen and find the distant beach on time. Wave number two, only a minute behind and close enough to benefit by the expert guidance, did not fare too badly. The ragged formation of number three, however, indicated mounting difficulties at the line of departure. From a study of numerous accounts, the experience of Major Simmons appears to have been typical. Wave five cleared the 802 about 1630. We had been told that a waveguide would pick us up and lead us to the line of departure. Time was passing and we were feeling desperate when we came alongside what was apparently the central control vessel. I asked the bridge for instructions. A naval officer with a bullhorn pointed out the direction of Blue 2, but nothing could be seen in that direction except mustard-colored haze and black smoke. We were on our way and our path crossed that of another wave. I asked if they were headed for Blue 2. Their wave commander answered, Hell no, we're the 2nd Battalion headed for Blue 1. We then veered off to the right. I broke out my map, but the LVT driver had no compass. With no confidence in its accuracy within a steel hull, I got out my lensatic compass and made a best guess as to the azimuth of our approach line. The nine LVTAs leading off for Lieutenant Colonel Alan Sutter's 2nd Battalion thrashed through the gloom and crawled ashore on Blue 1 at 1730, on schedule. 
Meeting no opposition at the beach, they rumbled northward to the road skirting the knoll in order to penetrate the interior. The exit was blocked by an earth slide resulting from the naval bombardment of the high ground and the column of amphibious vehicles ground to a halt. At H plus one, most of the 11 LVTs of the second wave crunched ashore with elements of two assault companies. The remainder, with troops of Fox Company embarked, had grounded in mud about 300 yards offshore. The Marines had to wade to the beach, and they lost several pieces of communications gear and potholes en route. Company D, on the left, was to have remained aboard the tractors for the drive inland, while the troops of Company F debarked at the beach, cleared the knoll, and continued overland on foot. The latter scheme of maneuver unfolded as planned, and the Marines encountered no resistance when they swept to the top of the high ground. Dog Company, meanwhile, had also dismounted because of the blocked road. The third wave groped ashore through the smoke at H plus 4, bringing the remainder of both assault companies and raising the total strength on Blue 1 to 30 tractors and over 600 men. Noting that the beach was getting crowded, Lieutenant Colonel Sutter ordered his free tractor to pull alongside the revetment of the evaporator on the left. When his battalion headquarters had debarked on the wall, he turned his attention seaward that he might signal the succeeding three waves, carrying the rest of 2-1, to do likewise. He looked and waited in vain, however, for the LVT formations did not materialize out of the offshore haze. Meanwhile, Companies D and F reorganized quickly to continue the attack. Looking inland from the knoll, officers and NCOs could catch glimpses of the unfamiliar terrain only between billows of smoke. Several landmarks loomed ahead that were not marked on the inaccurate tactical maps. Many others that had been recorded were ablaze, and the numerous fires would make direct compass marches difficult. Moreover, since the enemy situation inland was open to conjecture, dispersed tactical formations would add to the problem of controlling the Marine advance. Despite these disadvantages, Sutter pressed the attack. Easy Company and Battalion Reserve, together with part of Weapons and H&S, had not landed, nor had all of the vital signal equipment for supporting arms. But further waiting and delay was out of the question, since only about an hour of daylight remained. Company D struck out for Regimental Objective Abel, the junction on the left flank 1,000 yards away, and Company F drove northeast in the direction of Objective Dog, Hill 117. It was almost dark when the last of the 600 troops plunged forward into the unknown, leaving LVT crews behind to open the road with picks and shovels. Ending the Ship-to-Shore Movement The nine LVTAs comprising 3-1's first wave had closed on the seawall of Blue Beach 2 shortly after H-hour. Nosing their vehicles toward the drainage ditch on the left, the drivers apparently eyed the muck and confirmation of the restricted passageway with some skepticism, for they backed off and exchanged fire with scattered enemy soldiers shooting from just beyond the waterfront. Wave number two passed through the army tractors and bumped the seawall ten minutes late with the leading elements of companies G and I, the former on the left. Since the landing echelons had intermingled in the cloudy boat lane, some LVTs of the third wave arrived with those of the second. 
This accounted for Lieutenant Colonel Ridge's tractor reaching the beach one increment ahead of schedule. The battalion commander and his executive officer, Major Reginald R. Myers, immediately swung their separate vehicles around to the right flank, Ridge heading toward the ramp while the other officer continued around the corner in the direction of Blue 3. On the left of Blue 2, meanwhile, the amphibians carrying Captain George C. Westover's Company G formed a column and crawled into the drainage ditch. Troops of First Lieutenant Joseph R. Fisher's item company simultaneously scrambled up their aluminum ladders and deployed just beyond the seawall in the face of moderate small arms fire. As had been anticipated, some of the metal scaling devices bent and buckled under the strain, delaying troop debarkation from the landing craft crowding the revetment. Assault elements of Captain Lester G. Harmon's Company C, 1st Engineer Battalion, reached the beach and anchored cargo nets over the wall to speed up the landing. The lead tractor of George Company's column bellied down in the mud of the drainage ditch, blocking five other LVTs behind. Westover ordered his troops to dismount and move forward along a road near the beach. After a brief period of reorganization, Company G fanned out for the drive inland, its mission being to block a lowland corridor and secondary access road leading to Blue Beach out of the east. Just about the time Westover's LVTs bogged down in the ditch on the left, the tractors transporting Ridge and Myers crawled ashore over the ramp and Blue Beach 3 respectively, setting a precept for the mounting number of landing craft lying off Blue 2. A heavy volume of traffic was thus diverted to the cove, and the appreciable gain in time far outweighed the intermingling which developed by landing troops at a right angle to those scaling the seawall. In recalling the situation ashore as of 1800, H plus 30, Colonel Lewis B. Puller, the regimental commander, later observed, I personally landed on Blue Beach with the third wave. My reason for doing so was exactly that there was a strong possibility of confusion and disorganization under the circumstances, namely the unavoidable necessity of landing the regiment without a rehearsal, without even a CPX. The reorganization of the assault battalions was accomplished with remarkable speed and effectiveness. I recall being, at the time, extremely gratified that my prior concern in this connection was not warranted. Despite the initial delays at the ditch and seawall, companies G and I cleared the beach rapidly. Of the few casualties taken during the first 30 minutes ashore, most were caused by an enemy machine gun in a tower about 500 yards inland. LVT fire silenced the weapon, and the Marine infantry plunged forward through a labyrinth of blazing buildings and smoke-filled streets. On the left, George Company groped almost straight ahead toward the lowland corridor as Item veered sharply southward to attack Objective Charlie, the seaward tip of Hill 233. While the assault units fought inland, the gathering darkness created one more formidable handicap for the last wave serials leaving the line of departure far out in the channel. The four Navy guideboats, mentioned earlier as having escorted the first wave, were exactly 28 short of the number prescribed by amphibious doctrine for a landing of the Inchon Assault's magnitude. For this reason, the guideboats took station on either side of the boat lanes after the initial run, 
since it was manifestly impossible for them to help out in any other way. The limited visibility, however, just about negated their worth as stationary markers, owing to the fact that some landing craft formations were losing their direction even before they entered the boat lanes. In describing the situation as it developed at the line of departure, Lieutenant Clark commented, The Blue Beach Control Officer was unable to contact LVT wave commanders or wave guide officers by radio at any time during the initial assault. The control officer was aware that waves or groups of LVTs and boats were landing at the wrong places, but was helpless to prevent it without communications. As a last resort, casualty and salvage landing craft were dispatched to assist the initial wave guides, members of UDT-1, in rounding up vehicles and leading or directing them to Blue Beach. Since current and smoke fought relentlessly against tractors seaward of the line of departure, not all of the vehicles could find the control ship. If they did, it was next to impossible to come in close enough to get instructions shouted from the bridge. Thus many wave commanders, Amtrak officers, and infantry leaders gave orders to head shoreward on their own initiative. They went in with waves and fragments of waves, displaying the kind of leadership that made the operation an overwhelming success in spite of the obstacles. This was the case with the three waves of 2-1 that failed to arrive at Blue 1. They found their way ashore, some of the LVTs landing on Blue 2, others diverted to Blue 3, but the important thing was that they got there. The most serious error of the day, again offset by initiative and decision, involved Lieutenant Colonel Jack Hawkins' 1st Battalion, landing in Regimental Reserve. About H-hour, Puller radioed Hawkins and ordered him to cross the line of departure with LCVP waves 21 through 25, carrying the whole of 1-1. Had the approach to the beach gone smoothly, the battalion would have begun landing at approximately H plus 45, 1815. Because of the conditions in the channel and boat lanes, as already described, a searchlight on the control ship now beamed the supposed course to the beach. Actually, the whole area had become so clouded that the light was mistakenly pointed toward the outer tidal basin, some 45 degrees off course to the northeast. Moving in the designated direction, the first two of the reserve waves reached the seawall of the basin, and the Marines, believing they were at the revetment of Blue 2, began debarking. Hawkins, following in the third wave, wave number 23, caught the error as his boat passed within sight of two outlying islands between the basin and the salt evaporator jutting out from the left of Blue 1. About the same time, Lt. Col. Robert W. Rickert, executive officer of the 1st Marines, noticed some of the errant landing craft from his freeboat between the line of departure and Blue 1. He intercepted a group of the LCVPs and reoriented them. In the meantime, Hawkins cruised the length of the basin wall and shouted instructions to the troops of the first two waves. Most of Company B had already debarked and a few of the empty boats had left for the channel. Able Company, having just begun to land, promptly re-embarked in its LCVPs. In short order, the battalion reformed at sea and headed toward Blue 2. Owing to the lack of boats, one platoon of Baker Company remained on the tidal basin all night. 
Hiking to rejoin the company on the mainland next morning, this platoon rounded up an impressive bag of prisoners. Upon reaching Blue 2 in darkness, Hawkins found Company C, which had avoided the detour owing to the sixth sense of a boat coxswain, organizing the setting up of local security. The battalion commander led most of 1-1 forward to a night assembly area along the railroad tracks, half a mile inland. Major David W. Bridges, Battalion S-3, was left behind to organize latecomers as they arrived from the tidal basin. Seizure of the O-1 Line The tactical situation ashore had meanwhile begun to crystallize for the 1st Marines. In the 2nd Battalion zone, Dog Company occupied Objective A, the road intersection, at 2000. Two hours later, Fox Company reported that it occupied enough of Objective D, Hill 117, so that it could cover the Inchon Sola Highway with fire. The attack from the beach had cost Sutter's unit 1 KIA and 19 WIA as compared to enemy losses of 15 prisoners and an estimated 50 dead. On the right of the regimental zone, Ridge's 3rd Battalion was also making good progress against light resistance. Item Company reported at 1900 that it was on Objective C, the western nose of Hill 233. Half an hour later, George Company began deploying and blocking positions across the corridor and road at the center of the O-1 line. This movement was completed about 2030. The first platoon of Howe Company passed seaward of Item at 2030 and pressed a night attack against a company of North Koreans on Objective B, the small cape topped by Hill 94. After a token resistance, the Reds abandoned their well-prepared entrenchments leaving 30 dead and wounded to be counted by the Marines. Howe Company, less 1st and 2nd platoons, covered the low ground between George and Item, finally occupying a blocking position about 400 yards behind the O-1 line. With the seizure of Hill 94, the critical portions of the O-1 line were secured. There was, however, a good deal of activity within the perimeter for several more hours. Major bridges of 1-1 collected about 100 latecomers at Blue Beach 3 and led them forward in search of the battalion assembly area. Composed of men from H&S, Abel, and Baker companies, the little force not only missed its destination but made one of the deepest penetrations of the day, finally halting on a hill to the left of George Company's front lines. Shortly after Bridges set up a defensive position for the night, his position was invaded by an Easy Company contingent in search of the 2nd Battalion. Reoriented to some degree, the visitors reached Dog Company's intersection much later. The 2nd Battalion CP had meanwhile intercepted a group from Major Whitman S. Bartley's Weapons Company at the trail junction selected in the darkness for the initial battalion CP. At one or the other of these points, the misdirected portions of Sutter's battalion were directed to their parent units. All personnel were present or accounted for before dawn. Two other troop movements completed the tactical mosaic of the 1st Marines. The 2nd platoon of Howe Company was to pass through Items lines on Objective C at 2330 and outpost the summit of Hill 233, some 2,000 yards farther along the ridge, and beyond the regimental front. After setting out on schedule, the small unit covered about half of its rugged journey upon reaching Hill 180 
and intermediate height. With most of the night gone and his troops wearied by the climb, the platoon leader radioed for permission to halt and his request was granted. Another venture into the unknown was made by an even smaller unit. 2nd Lieutenant Bruce F. Cunliffe's 60mm section of Fox Company had somehow mingled with 3rd Battalion troops during the drive inland. When he led his men through the darkness in search of 2-1, the section ranged forward of friendly lines and into unexplored territory near Hill 117. The surprise was mutual when these Marines stumbled into a small NKPA patrol. But a brief firefight in the darkness was enough for the Red Soldiers, who took to their heels and left three dead. Cunliffe's force, which had no casualties, spent the rest of the night in uneventful isolation. End of chapter 6, part 2. Read by Aaron Bennett.